There is no substitute for the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Each weekday on Enjoying the Journey, Scott Pauley leads us in a brief study of Scripture. Today, on the Weekend Pulpit, we are happy to share a full-length Bible message given through Scott's pulpit ministry. These messages were recorded live in a local church or gospel event in recent days. It is our prayer that the message will be a help to you today. I want you to open your Bible with me, if you will, to the Gospel according to Mark. We have been studying all week this week the most important week in the history of the world, tracing Jesus' steps from the Sunday that marked his triumphal entry. We're headed towards, of course, the next Lord's Day, which is Resurrection Sunday, and I hope you won't just be here for these meetings. hope you'll plan to be here on the Lord's Day. And I would challenge you to do something. I don't have the opportunity to be with you every day this week, and I don't have certainly the time to preach to you what all four gospel writers say about every one of these days in the week of Christ's passion, but I would challenge you to read it for yourself. Between now and Resurrection Sunday, spend some time in the closing chapters of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It'll do your heart good and prepare you for this great emphasis on the resurrection. But tonight, I draw your attention to Mark chapter number 13. And let's review for just a moment. You'll remember, if you turn back in your Bible to Mark chapter number 11, we began with this little colt that Jesus rode into the city on. The Lord hath need of him. And we studied the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus on Sunday. And then we came forward and we examined what our Lord did in the cleansing of the temple. And then in our last meeting, we studied this powerful passage on prayer and having faith in God, which was really the essence of what Jesus was trying to leave his disciples with before he left them. It's amazing to me how much of our Lord's last words connected to prayer. And you might be surprised to know we're coming full circle back to that thought again in just a moment. Now, when you look at Mark chapter 12, just look at it. Just scan it. We're not going to preach all of it. Some of you are saying, praise God. He's not going to try to cover it all tonight. But Mark chapter 12 and Mark chapter 13. You are on the Lord's day, if I might say it, of conflict and instruction. We've had his day of presentation where he comes in. We've had his day of cleansing where he cleanses the temple. And then in Mark 12 and, verse, and Mark 13, you have the conflict that he has with the religious leaders. And I love this. He doesn't just get into some debate with them. Instead, he turns all of their debates into the classroom where he can teach the true disciples how they're supposed to be followers of him when he's gone. And I love that. You can only help people that want to be helped. And so frankly, I wonder tonight which group you fall in. Are you in the religious group that just already has your mind made up, you've got it all figured out? Or are you one of the disciples that's still in the Lord's school and you have the heart of a student that saying, Lord, teach me, show me your way so I can walk in it. And then when you pass these chapters, uh, you come to the day of preparation uh, where our Lord has the supper with his disciples. You have the day of the sacrifice, our Lord was slaughtered on the same day that the Passover lamb was put to death. That's powerful. And then he is buried. 
And we know, praise God, three days later, he comes out of that grave alive forevermore. I'm glad I have a living Savior tonight, aren't you? And he lives in me. I talked to him today. I heard from him today. What do you think about that? You say, oh, that's a, that's a weird preacher right there. No. No, he's real. He lives in me, and he speaks to me through his word and by his Holy Spirit. And he'll speak to you that way. Now, there's a lot of debate. Let's just get this out of the way. Some of you are waiting to see if I'll answer it. There's a lot of debate on which day our Lord died on. Uh, some people hold to a traditional view that he died on Friday. May I just say to you, I can't hold that view because I have a hard time figuring out how there were three days and three nights between Friday and Sunday morning. How about you? So I don't believe that he died on what people call Good Friday. And for the record, let's just say this. If people want to recognize the death of Jesus on Friday, that doesn't bother me at all. We ought to recognize the death of Jesus every day. Run to the cross every day of your life. That's all right. Uh, some people hold to a Wednesday view. I think your pastor holds this view. We had a little discussion about it this week. Uh, my study has brought me to an idea of a Thursday view. Somebody says, well, which one's right? I think Jesus will tell us when we get to the, when we get to the throne of God someday. I don't know exactly. I think I could show you from the Bible why I hold the position I do, but other strong Bible teachers and Bible students hold a little different view. And here's, here's the conclusion I've come to. It really doesn't matter. All I know is he died, he was buried, and hallelujah, he rose from the dead. I had a man who made that his, his hobby horse, and he would email me. <laughs> I remember. He would email me all these things, and he wanted to get into some debate on which day Jesus died on. And finally I said, dear brother, I appreciate your study and your interest, but i got to tell you, there's a whole lot of things that are very plain in Scripture I think we ought to spend our time studying and talking about instead of trying to pick one another apart. And I still believe that. So tonight, I, I bring you to the end of Mark chapter number 13. If you have a red letter edition Bible, you see the words of Christ here in red. These are the final things that our Lord says in one of His most famous sermons. You remember, He began His ministry with a sermon on the mount. He closes His ministry with a sermon on the Mount of Olives. And so like bookends on his preaching ministry, we've come now to the, to the Olivet Discourse. You can study it in each of these gospel records, but notice the conclusion of it in Mark's record. In Mark 13, beginning in verse 31, Jesus says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And I want to just stop and say amen to that. Thank God for that. Look, the heavens and the earth, Peter says someday, are going to melt away with fervent heat. And when all that happens, may I tell you, the Word of God that is forever settled in heaven will still be around. There's only two eternal things on this planet tonight. That's the souls of men and the Word of God, and both of them are going to outlive time. Isn't that exciting? It will not pass away. And then we come to our text, verse 32. But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Now the day, the hour he references here, is the hour of his return. And we're not going to get into all the ramifications of that. It's quite a study. It's an amazing study. Uh, one of the things I have observed about the, the Olivet Discourse, this final sermon of our Lord, is that it is full of prophecy. It is full of prophecy. And for that reason, a lot of people stay completely away from it. And I'd recommend you don't stay away from it because we ought to study prophecy and we ought to think prophecy and we ought to live with an anticipation. Jesus may come at any moment. Amen. But one thing I've noticed about the Olivet Discourse is it's not just prophetic, it's practical. Isn't that just like our Lord? 
That he would not just tell us what to believe, he'd tell us how to behave. That he would not just tell us what is right, he'd tell us what to do because of what is right. And so notice what he says in verse 33. Take ye heed. Would you circle the little word ye in your Bible and write in the margin, ye means me. Dear Lord, help me to take heed. Take ye heed, watch and pray. For ye know not when the time is. For the Son of Man, by the way, that's an expression for our Lord Jesus that was his favorite expression for himself. Did you know that? Of all the names and titles for Jesus, his favorite, his favorite was Son of Man. <laughs> Ponder that just a second. Is he the Son of God? Yes or no, church? Is he the Son of God? Yeah. Did he have every right to call himself Son of God every time he opened his mouth? Yes or no? Yeah. But his favorite title for himself is not Son of God, it is Son of what? Man. You know why that is? Because every time he referenced himself as the Son of Man, he was connecting to us. You want to talk about a merciful Savior. A high priest that is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. God who became a man without ever ceasing to be God. The Lord who became flesh and dwelt among us so we could behold his glory. I don't know about you. I'm glad he's not only the Son of God. I'm glad he's the Son of Man. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at even or at midnight or the cock crowing or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping. Would you read the last verse aloud with me, church? Ready? And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. I love that expression. He said, I say it to all. See, some people would say, well, the Olivet Discourse is not for us. The Olivet Discourse, that was just for those disciples that were standing there. Excuse me. He ends it by saying, just to be clear, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what I say to these, I say to all of you, watch. Aren't you glad God has a message for all of us? Would you like to hear God's message for you tonight, yes or no? Are you open to God's message for you tonight, yes or no? And what is it the Lord wants to say to us? It's a fascinating passage of Scripture because it's the passage of Scripture where Jesus is preparing his disciples for the fact that he's about to leave them. Oh, I love this. He is going to leave them, but he is not going to leave them alone. He's going to leave them. That's right. He's got to die. He's got to be buried. He's got to resurrect. He's going to spend 40 days with them, and then he's going to ascend back to the Heavenly Father. He is going to leave them. But watch this. He's going to leave them some things when he leaves them. Aren't you glad that when the Lord left this earth he did not leave us to our own devices that when he left the disciples he left them in their hand and in their heart everything they would need to live and to labor while he was away let me just show you something all right we're coming right back so hold your place don't lose your spot turn over with me to john for just a moment let's compare scripture with scripture come with me to john chapter 14 because this is this is a portion of what our lord said to his closest disciples just before he left them on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Look at John 14 and verse 16. He said, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. Notice it's a capital C. It's a person, not a thing. That he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I love verse 18. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. We're living in troubled times. And I want to remind you of something, church. God did not leave us alone when he left us. 
He left us on this earth for a purpose. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But don't you know if God leaves us for a purpose, He's going to give us the resources we need to fulfill the divine purpose? He hasn't left you to your own devices. He has sent the person of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, to indwell every believer. If you are a Christian, if you have truly received the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior, then the Spirit of Jesus Christ has come to live inside of you. And I tell you, on the authority of the Word of God, if you have the Holy Spirit, you have everything you need to live a victorious Christian life. Turn a page. Look at John chapter 16. Same, same discussion. He says in verse 7 of John 16, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. Literally, it's in your best interest. And I'm sure Peter was scratching his head and James and John were shaking their head. What on earth is he talking about? How could it be in our best interest for him to leave us? He said, If I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Look at verse 13. When he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. You want to know all truth? You want to understand what God has for you? You want to understand why you're here? You want to understand what he's doing in these last days? He said, I'm going to take care of all that. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and he's going to provide what you need, and he's going to guide you into all truth. I just want to stop and say, thank you, Jesus, that when you left, you left us everything that we needed. And do you find it interesting? Go back to Mark 13. Do you find it interesting that it's in the passage where he talks about his second coming? He's not only telling them, I'm leaving. I love this. He's telling them, I'm coming back. Do you remember Acts 1? This same Jesus, which is taken up from into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. So watch, please. Between the time that he left and the time that he returns, that's where we're living right now. Let me tell you where we're living. We're living in a big parenthesis. Does a parenthesis last forever? No. Is it important? Oh, yes. Ask any writer. The parenthesis is important. It brings meaning to the whole story. But look, the parenthesis of the church age, this, this time between his first coming and his second coming, that is where we are living. And Jesus says to those disciples and to every one of us, to all of us, that between those two great occasions, his departure and his return, he is leaving us everything that we need. So tonight, from Mark chapter 13, from these handful of verses, I'd like to talk to you on this little subject, four things that Jesus left us. Let's make a list. Would you make a list? It's not my list. It's Jesus' list. Jesus told the story, and in the story, Jesus made a list. And he emphasizes, don't miss this, what he has left us. May I say it this way? He emphasizes what we have in him. Before I give you the list, lift your head and look at me just a minute. Everywhere I go right now, traveling all over across this country, I'm going to tell you what I'm hearing mostly from Christian people. I'm hearing Christian people grumble and groan and mumble and moan about what has been taken away from them and what they don't have and what hasn't turned out the way they thought it would and what they're disappointed in. And I want to say to you, God's people ought not be whining their way to the rapture. It is high time that believers start talking like believers again. And that instead of emphasizing what we've lost or what we can't get, we go back to what we've received and what we can never lose. And when we're done tonight, I hope you'll walk right out those doors and go home with four things. If you're a Christian, you already have them. But four things in your mind that you can begin to apply to your life that Jesus left you that you can keep until the Lord returns for you someday. What are they? Well, look at the story. He says in verse 34, the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey. That's, that's a picture of what he was going to do when he left them. In his ascension, he's taken 
a far journey to another place. He is sat down at the right hand of the Heavenly Father. But notice, please, who. And then he gives this list, left. Would you mark the word left? Four things Jesus left us. He left, number one, his house. Ask any man, a house is representative of everything you own. If I said to you, what's your biggest investment? What's your, what's your lifelong possession? What's the thing you've, you've put your heart and soul into? What is it you work to keep up all the time? It is your what? House. Would you write this down? Number one. Number one. You want to know what Jesus left you? What you have right now in Christ? Number one. You have his wealth. I have good news tonight. You may be poor, but your father's very rich. And we may be living in spiritually impoverished times, but friend, your father still owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He has every hair on your head numbered. He knows you by name. He has his eye on you. His ear is open to your prayer, and the Lord has more than enough. Look, please, he left you his wealth. If I say to you, come on to West Virginia and stay for a few days. I won't be there, but you can stay in the house. How many of you know that's a, that's a statement of real trust? Is that a statement of trust? And if I say to you, come to the house, I don't say break in and try to find a way into the house. What do I do? I give you the keys. Oh, I love this. Before Jesus ever left his disciples, he said to them, I'm giving you the keys. What are keys? Keys are a picture of authority, of access, of assurance. Look, please. If you have the key, then you have access to the whole house. He, he hadn't given you part of it. He's given you all of it. May I say to you, when you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you come into the family of God. Watch this. When you come into the family, you get the whole inheritance. My God supplies all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And I'm going to tell you, that's a whole lot of riches in glory. I used to preach that verse wrong. I used to preach it like this. You come to God and bring your need, and the Lord will take a little bit out of his bank account and give you just exactly what you need. And then I got to study that verse, and I found out that's not what that verse says. It says according to his riches, not according to your need, according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Literally, not in proportion to your need, oh, I love it, but in proportion to his wealth. Look, please, you don't just get a little dab to do you, just enough to endure and eke by and exist. You get access to all of God's riches in glory through Christ Jesus. You get access to the whole account of your heavenly Father. And so Jesus leaves you his wealth. I'm looking tonight at a varied group of people and that means of varied needs in the room there are physical and emotional and mental and spiritual and financial and marital and relational and on and on and on the list goes i've got really good news for you tonight i don't know your need but god does and even if i did know your need i probably couldn't meet your need but god can meet every one of our needs because he's left us access to his spiritual wealth let me show you something stay with me just a minute would you come over in your new testament to the book of Second Peter for just a minute. Now notice what Peter writes near the end of the New Testament, near the end of the, the revelation of Christ. Look at Second Peter chapter 1 and verse number 3. Oh, may the Holy Spirit open this to you tonight. Some of us are living like misers, like, like paupers, like beggars, when we have access to the great God of glory. Why do we live in such unbelief? Look at Second Peter 1 verse 3. According as his divine power hath given unto us, does your Bible say all things? Yes, Somebody said all means all, that's all all means. Look at it. 
It is given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Watch this, please. You got it all when you got Jesus. You don't get him in the installment plan. He moves in and brings all the furniture with him when he moves in. Now, you spend the rest of your Christian life discovering all you received in Christ Jesus. What the writer of Hebrews calls the things that accompany salvation. In fact, you're never going to get to the end of that. Let me really blow your mind. I used to hear people preach that when we get to heaven, you're going to know everything. That is not what the Bible teaches. It says you will know even as you are known. Let me ask you something. How boring would it be to get to heaven and know everything on your first day and not have anything to discover for the rest of eternity? May I tell you that our God is an infinite God and there is no way that we could know or exhaust an infinite God. You're going to spend the rest of eternity, in the words of the hymn writer, going deeper and deeper into the love of your God. The greatest adventure in the world is the one that awaits you in the world to come. So we start digging around and discovering what God has left us here, all of his wealth, all things that pertain to life and godliness, and then we step out of this world and into the next only to discover more and more that God has for us. On our way back to Mark, would you stop in Ephesians for just a minute? Ephesians is the book of fullness, so that's an appropriate place to stop. Now look at Ephesians 1 and verse number 3. Because Paul started his letter to the believers in Ephesus the same way Peter started his letter. Look at Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with, hmm, there's that word again, all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. I say to you, the first thing that God gave you is all the spiritual resources you need to live a victorious Christian life. So if you're living in defeat, I want you to know it's not God's fault, it's yours. It's not because God didn't make it available, it's because you didn't access it or you didn't appropriate it. We don't have time to study this, but in Matthew's record, he tells a story during the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter number 25 of a master that traveled into a far country. And the Bible says, he delivered unto his servants his goods. That's essentially what it means when it says, we have his house. All of God's goods, look please, all of God's riches, he says, all my children, you have access to that. There's a second thing. Go back with me to our text and look again in Mark chapter 13. Look at the list. In verse 34, the Son of Man is a man taking a far journey who left his house, that's the first thing, and gave, here's the second thing, authority to his service. Now we know God has authority, but he gave us authority. Mm -hmm. May I ask you, where is God's authority found? We're in Mark, so let's just answer it right here, all right? Let's, let's just let the Bible give us the answer. Go back to the beginning of Mark for just a moment. Look at Mark chapter 1 and verse 22. This is the beginning of Christ's earthly preaching ministry. And look what the Bible says in Mark 1, 22. It says, they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had, what's that word, church? Authority. And not as the scribes. That's very significant. And not as the scribes. I used to read this and think the authority was he stood up and his voice was a big booming voice. But actually, when you read the scriptures, it really doesn't say anything about his vocal cords and the quality of his voice. I think it must have been beautiful to hear him speak, but the Bible even says he wouldn't lift up his voice in the street and, and try to call attention to himself. I think sometimes we preachers probably preach louder than our Lord spoke in many of his messages. That's interesting to me. 
So what was the authority? Was the authority, look up here and listen to me. I've got something to say and you're going to pay attention. No, that's bossy, but that's not authority. What was the authority? The authority was in his word. Would you write this down? The Lord not only left you his wealth, he left you his word. The only authority I have to preach to you is the word of God. I don't have the right to come in here and preach my sermon and tell you what I think you ought to do. I have nothing to say to you. I'm a messenger boy. That's all I am. And the only authority I have is in the Word of God. But watch, that's not just true for preachers. That's true for all of God's servants. If you want to live with a life of confidence and certainty, then you must live your life in the Word of God. Because the Word is the authority of the Master to the servant. What gives us the right to tell people they need Jesus? Well, who gives you that right? What gives you the right to say there's only one way to heaven? What gives you that right? What gives you the right to say this is the way I'm supposed to live? Well, like, who has that right? It's all given to us in the Word of God. Look, please, when you live in the Word and the Word lives in you, you're allowing the Lord Jesus Christ to exercise His authority in your life. When you submit to the Word, you are submitting to the Lord. People say, well, you know, we're having a wonderful meeting and we like all of this. Let me tell you how the meeting can go on. I love revival meetings. I love, I love preaching revival meetings. But there's something better than a revival meeting. I'm going to tell you what it is. It's called a revived life. And the way to live a revived life is to live in the Word every day like we've been living in the Word this week. There's no magic to it. Look, it's not me. It is the Word of the living God and the Holy Spirit using the Word of the living God. There were some people here last night that got some real spiritual victories and there were some breakthroughs in some people's lives that I didn't know anything about. How could I have known anything about it? You know what did that? The Word did that. Friend, I believe in the sufficiency of the Word of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Everything you need is found in the Word of the living God. By the way, a little secret before we move on. Look here at Mark 1, 22 again. They were astonished at his doctrine, the authority of his doctrine. And the Bible is very careful to tell us it was not as the scribes. What does that mean? You know who the scribes were? The scribes were the most learned people in the Word that existed in that day. They were the people, not just like Ezra, who wrote out the Word and copied the Word and were entrusted with the keeping of Scripture. By the time of Jesus' day, the scribes were the religious interpreters of the Word. They knew it better than anybody. They knew it inside and out. They could quote it from memory. I mean, these guys knew the Word. And yet something was woefully missing in them. Do you know what was missing in them? The personal experience of the Word. They spoke out of their tradition, and Jesus spoke out of the portals of glory. When Jesus opened his mouth and spoke, look please, he had just come from the Father's family room. He stepped into time, and they said, never a man spake like this man. I'm going to tell you why. Because he was speaking out of the overflow of what he had seen and heard and experienced and knew personally to be true. Look please, if you want the Word of God to affect your life and to affect your family and to affect those you witness to, then dear God, deliver us from simply going through the motions and reciting religious cliches all of our existence, have your own personal experience with the Word of the living God. 
I tell you, get in the Word and get to know God personally. And when you do, somebody say, I don't know what that man has, what that woman has, but whatever it is, we need a good dose of it. I'll tell you, Jesus left us his wealth, and he left us his word. Go back to our story. Let me show you the third thing in the list. He left his house, gave authority to his servants. Mm. Here's where the rubber meets the road. And to every man his work. Would you write down, please, that he left us all a work? Work is not a dirty word, by the way. I've heard people say, yeah, if Adam and Eve hadn't fallen, we wouldn't have to, we wouldn't have to work like this. Read your Bible again. They were working before the fall. The thorns and thistles got added because of the fall, but work is a privilege and it's a blessing, and it's especially so when God connects your work to his work, when God connects your life to what he's doing for eternity, when God connects your purpose to his divine purpose. Oh, may God, by his spirit, open the eyes of some men and women of all different ages in this congregation tonight to realize that God has given you the privilege and responsibility of being a part of the greatest work on planet Earth. In Mark, the Bible says Jesus sent them out and then he went with them by his spirit and working everywhere with them. Wouldn't you love to get in on God's work team? He's a real good foreman, let me tell you. And wouldn't you love to see the Lord come alongside and work with you? The Bible says we are labors together with God. I cannot think of a greater privilege than to be allowed to be a part of God's wonderful work in this world. And immediately somebody says, yeah, well, that's for the preacher. Oh, really? Look at the verse. And to every man his work. See, he gets real personal now, and he gets real specific. It's not to some servants. Mm -mm. It's to every man. I want to say to you tonight, if you're a Christian, there's a work God has for you to do. Amen. We got too many bench sitters. That's what we got. We need to get some people off the bench and back in the game for the Lord. That's what we need. There was a day that churches were advancing the gospel and going after souls and trying to reach people and trying to get something done for the Lord. And you know what the great secret of it was? People were excited about serving the Lord together and, and doing something for God. And suddenly, excuse me, we've sat down on the Lord. And we're going to be pretty ashamed when Jesus comes back and the last day's Christians have a given account for why we coasted across the threshold of glory. Let me ask you a question. When we stand with the martyrs at the judgment seat of Christ, what do you think we're going to say when we make excuses to the Lord about why we couldn't have witnessed and why we couldn't have served the Lord when God gave us the greatest opportunity in the history of the world? You're living in the greatest mission field this world has ever known right now. And do you understand sometime real soon the trumpet's going to sound and it's all going to be over. Whatever you're supposed to be doing for the Lord, you better do it right now. And you may not be able to do everything, but you can do something. And you may not reach everybody, but you can reach somebody. Dear God, help us to understand He has left us a work to do. People come to churches and they even come to church selfishly. Excuse me. They plop down in seats and fold their arms and look at the preacher like, all right, teach me something I've never heard before. That's not what church is about. Church is not a spectator sport. This is not a group sport. This is not for everybody to come in and watch the guy on the platform do his thing. This is the place where you're to be equipped and enlisted to do the work of the Lord. And when we walk out those doors, the real work commences, and all of God's children are supposed to find their place in that. In fact, let me just show you this from Scripture. Stay with me a second. Come over with me in your Bible back to the book of Ephesians for just a moment. Would you come to Ephesians? Now look at Ephesians chapter 4. There's this wonderful list of 
of the gifts that God gives about apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, and that's all good. But they're just to perfect the saints so the saints can do the work of the ministry. And then when you come down to verse number, oh, verse 14. Look at it, please. No, look, verse 15. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. So he's talking about the church growing. Let's take a church vote. Pastor, may I take a church vote tonight? It doesn't have anything to do with money, all right? Let's take a church vote. How many of you cast your vote that you'd like to see your church grow? Would you raise your hand, please? Okay? I'm going to tell you how the church collectively grows. The church collectively only grows when the individuals in the church grow. So look at the next verse. Verse 16. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that, don't miss this, which every joint supplied. How many of you have lived long enough to know every joint in your body actually does mean something? I told the preacher this week, I, I, I'm still trying to exercise, but I got joints hurt me. I didn't even know I had joints. I got, I got body parts and uh, connectors that I'm starting to feel that I never even thought about before. Do you know why? Because every little joint matters. Look, please. It may not be the most visible, but it is essential. Here's what God does. In this body, He fits every joint together. I wonder, I wonder, are you out of joint? Are you out of joint with the Lord? Are you out of joint with the church? I'm not just talking about attending either. I'm talking about serving the Lord. What part are you playing in the wonderful work of God? Same book, two chapters before, he talks not about the church not as a body, but as a building. And he says, every stone fitly joined together. See, God has a place where everybody fits. Aren't you glad God makes a place so everybody fits? Amen. And there's something for you to do for the Lord. On our way back, stop off in Corinthians for just a moment, would you please? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is one of the list of the spiritual gifts and I wish we had time to study it, but let me show you one verse. Look at 1 Corinthians 12 and verse number 11. But all these, talking about the gifts, worketh that one and the selfsame Spirit. Remember the Holy Spirit that came to live inside of you? Dividing to, please mark the next two words in your Bible. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 11. Every man severally as he will. So every one of us has something that God Almighty has given us to do. 1 Peter 4 verse 10 says, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You know what we have? We've raised a whole generation of Dead Sea Christians. You know what's wrong with the Dead Sea? You know why it's dead? I've been there. A Jordanian man showed me the Dead Sea. And it was bitter. It wasn't salty. The water's bitter. And he said to me, Scott, life always becomes death when it's kept to itself. You know why the Dead Sea's dead? Not because living things don't flow into it. They flow into it all the time. The Dead Sea's dead because when you keep it to yourself and nothing ever flows out of you, after a while, it turns to death. You know what happens to church members? They sit on church pews for decades and they take in and 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 take in and, excuse me, get more spiritually bloated all the time and they're perfectly miserable in their church attendance till finally they say, well, we're just not getting fed here, I guess. We've got to go find someplace else. No, no. Your problem wasn't that you weren't getting fed. Your problem was you didn't learn to feed anybody else. We have become Dead Sea people who are depositories of truth instead of channels of truth. And I say it's time to open up the dam, to remove the obstacles, to get the junk out of God's way and say, Lord, we want to get in on your work in this world. Let's go back to our passage and I'll give you one final thing and be done. 
He has left us, but he has left us his wealth and his word and our own work. And then I love this. He has left us a watch. The word here is literally a military term used by a sentry. We, we might say, what's the watch word? Well, that's the word that's used here, watch. A stewardship. Would you mark it in your Bible? In verse 33, every time I stop, say the next word. Look at verse 33. Take ye heed. Let's review class. Every time I stop, you say the next word. All right, here we go. Verse 33. Take ye heed. Mm. Look at verse 34. For the Son of Man is as a man taken a far journey, who left his house, gave authority to his servants, to every man his work, and commanded the porter to what? What's the first word of verse 35? What's the last word of the entire chapter? Let me ask you a question. How many times does Jesus have to say it before we learn to do it? I don't know how it was at your house, at my house growing up. If mama said it once, we were supposed to listen. If she said it twice, we were really supposed to listen. And if she had to say it three or four times, it was too late to listen. How many of you know what I'm talking about? When Jesus repeats himself, it's not because he forgot he said it the first time. It's because he doesn't want us to forget that he said it. Look, please. To be watchful is to be wide awake. Oh, may the Holy Ghost of God wake some of us up. Some Christians, the first alarm clock they're going to hear is the trumpet, and it's going to be too late then. May God wake up some of his people to begin living alert to him and what he's up to in their lives and up to in this world. God has given us a watch. And I love this. He tells you what to watch for and how to do it. What are you supposed to watch for? His coming. Every day you're supposed to be looking for the soon return of Jesus Christ, living expectantly. For the record, that will change how you live your life. But I love this. He not only tells us what to watch for, he tells us how to watch. He says if you're going to watch, you're going to have to watch and what? Pray. Do you know what prayer does? Prayer keeps you wide awake to God. And when we cease our fervent, earnest praying, when we let up on our prayers, you know what happens? We start going to sleep on the Lord. And I say it's high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. Jesus left us a watch. His last word was watch, because any moment Jesus is coming back for us. Don't you want to be ready when the Lord returns for us? And so he has left us a watch that we must fulfill. Would you turn one page in your Bible? Just one page. Look at Mark chapter 14. Jesus is praying in the garden in verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he cometh and findeth him sleeping. And saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? And before you start fussing at Peter, I want you to recognize how sleepy we've got. There was a day you were passionate after souls. There was a day you were hungry for the word. There was a day you were earnest about your prayers. There was a day you wept for unbelievers. We've gotten pretty sleepy, don't you think? Sleepest thou? Look at his next question. Couldst not thou watch one hour? It's just a short time. Just a short time till the Lord returns. Can't you watch just a little longer? See, verse 38 doesn't sound vaguely familiar. I think it did to Peter. Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. Isn't it interesting that Jesus taught this in Mark 13, and by Mark 14, they had already forgotten it? See, our problem is not that we haven't heard all this. Everything I've preached to you this week, for the most part, you've heard at some point. Our problem is not that we haven't heard it. Our problem is we've forgotten it. 
Our problem isn't that we don't even believe it. We believe it. We give mental assent to it. Our problem is that we're not doing with what we believe what we ought to be doing as children of God. We are neglecting all these things that Jesus left us. I started preaching as a teenager in the hills of West Virginia. And those, those sweet people, they were patient with me, kind to let me come preach in their churches and give me opportunity. An old preacher in Huntington, West Virginia named Carl Valance. Never forget him. He's in glory now. He asked me if I'd come preach a revival meeting in his church. I think it was the first revival meeting I ever held. If I remember correctly, I was about 14 at the time. I couldn't drive. They had to drive me there. I couldn't stay in a hotel by myself, so I stayed at his house. I realize now, looking back on it, it wasn't so much that he thought I could really help his church. It was that he was trying to help me, and he did. One afternoon, he took me up a set of stairs in his home to a little study that he had, and he said, you need to build a library, son. You need to have books. And he said, I want to help you get started. And he walked straight over to a shelf, had lots of books on it, and he pulled one book off, one. I can see it right now. I've got it in my library. He pulled that book off. Without a word, he opened the front cover. He took out his pen, and he wrote to Scott Pauley from Reverend Carl Valance, and he put the date, and he spun it around, and he handed it to me, and he said, now add this to your library and start reading good books. He said, you'll like this one. I thanked him. I must tell you, the book was a hard cover, Yellow pages, lots of dust, and no pictures. Not my favorite at the time. I took it home and set it on a shelf. And for probably 10 years, paid it very little attention. I was in my mid-20s, and I saw that book one day, and I thought, Brother Valance, and I thought, you know, out of honor for that old fellow, I really ought to read that book. And I picked it up and started reading it. Couldn't put it down. It was a true story of a man by the name of Ali Hafed. Ali Hafed was a Persian man, had a beautiful farm and a lovely family and a great life. A priest that lived there in Persia came by Ali Hafed's farm one day just to chat. And in the course of conversation, he said to Ali Hafed, have you heard about them discovering diamond mines all over the world? And he said, no, I haven't heard about that. And he said, yeah, they're finding diamonds everywhere. And he said, when they find diamonds, they're so fabulously wealthy, they never have to work again a day in their life. Isn't it funny how you can be perfectly content one moment and then some seed gets planted in your heart and suddenly you're discontent. Yeah. And Ali Hafed suddenly started thinking about those diamonds, what he didn't have. One morning he got up and did something really dumb. You ever done something really dumb? He sold his farm. He gave his family away. True story. Different culture. Took his wife and kids down the road, gave them to a neighbor, said, I'm setting off on a search for diamonds. When I find my diamond mine, I'll come back after my family. And he left them and would never see them again. He spent the rest of his miserable existence crisscrossing the globe, hopping from continent to continent looking for diamonds. Not only did he never find a diamond mine, he never found a single diamond. As an old man, broken, he went to the bay in Barcelona, Spain, with nothing to live for, and jumped and took his own life. Somebody said, that's a tragic story. That's not the half of it. What Ali Afed did not know is that just days after selling his farm, the new owner took his camel out back to water it on a little creek that ran through the property, and that camel with its big nose was nosing around in the creek bed and uncovered the most beautiful rock. He thought it was really pretty, so he polished it up, took it inside, and set it on the mantle over the fireplace, and the same priest came by to pay a visit to the new owner. And when he walked in, his eyes lit up, and he said, Ali Hafed has returned. And he said, no. He said, where'd you get the diamond? He said, that's not a diamond, just an old rock I found. And the priest's eyes got big, and he said, where'd you get it? He said, in the creek out back. He said, show me. 
They went to the creek bed and got down on their hands and knees and started digging around, and they found another one just like it. And another one. And another one. And another one. They hired teams of people to come in and excavate. They brought miners in from all over the region. And do you know, true story, you can find it in, in the history books, to that point in history, it was the largest discovery of a diamond mine in the world. It was the great diamond mine of Golconda from which the crown jewels of many nation came. And the sad reality was that what Ali Hafed had spent his entire miserable life looking for, he actually already had all along. If he had just taken the time to dig into it and to work on it. And I want to say to you, dear beloved believers, I've enjoyed the time together. But God has so much more for every one of us, and God has so much more for this church. Don't you miss what God has for you. Don't you die before you die. And don't you quit before God is finished. Jesus has left you everything you need. Our Father, I pray tonight that the Holy Spirit will put the truth deeply in our hearts. And help us, O oh God, to do with it what we're supposed to do with it. And I praise you. We sit quietly before the Lord tonight. And I think if it's all right, we won't have any music so that we can just all pray. May I ask, how many of you know you're saved? I mean, you really know you've been born again. You say, I'm a Christian. I've trusted Jesus. He lives in me. I'm going to live with him someday. I'm saved, preacher. I want you to raise your hand big and high in the earth, mine. Would you please? That's wonderful. You may lower your hands. If you just raised your hand, would you thank God for that right now? And while you're doing that, may I ask, who is here tonight that would say, Preacher, I couldn't raise my hand. I will not embarrass you. I'm not going to make a spectacle of you. I give you my word. The preacher sang that song about one more soul. One more soul. Is there one soul here tonight that would acknowledge with humility and honesty, Preacher, I'm not 100% sure of my soul's salvation and my relationship to God but I know I need him. I'm not positive I'm saved, but I know for sure I don't want to be lost and go to hell. Pray for me. I want you to slip your hand up in the air with mine, would you please? Long enough for me to see it. I'm looking carefully. Pray for me, preacher. I'm not certain that I'm really a Christian, but I want to be. Thank you for your honesty. Anybody else like that? If you just raised your hand, could I talk to you for a moment? Nobody's looking but me and you. I don't know you. I don't think you know me. You believe in divine appointments? I do too. And I want to give you a really good message tonight just for you. God loves you. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for your sins and was buried and rose from the dead. That's what we're getting ready to celebrate on Easter Sunday, the resurrection. I want to tell you, 40 years ago, a lady, not a preacher, a lady, explained that to me from the Bible. First time I remember hearing it, 40 years ago. And that afternoon, I bowed my head, and I prayed a simple prayer. I don't even remember what I prayed, but I know I meant it from my heart. And I asked Jesus to be my Savior. I just took God at his word. I put my faith in God. And that day, 40 years ago, Jesus saved me. Now, I've made some dumb decisions, things I regret. You ever done anything you regretted? We're all sinners, aren't we? But I've never once regretted putting my faith in Jesus. Never once. I'm going to give you a verse just for you. Here's the verse. Whosoever, that's anybody, 
shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It means anybody that will put their faith in the Lord and simply call on Him and say, Lord, save me. God will hear that prayer. Forgive your sin. Come to live in your life now and take you to live with Him in heaven for eternity. Is that what you want? It's wonderful. Do you believe Jesus died for your sins? Do you believe He rose from the dead? Then I'm going to give you an opportunity right where you sit. I'm talking about right now. Right where you sit to call on the Lord like I did 40 years ago and ask Jesus to be your Savior. I'd like you to bow your head with me right where you are. And anybody else that's listening to me that's not saved, maybe somebody even online not sure of your salvation, I'd like to lead you in a very simple prayer that you can make your own. You're not talking to me. I'm not your priest. You're talking to God and God is listening. If you truly want to be saved, would you pray something like this from your heart to God, just quietly there where you are right now, from your heart. Just say, Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. Tell Him right now from your heart, I know I'm a sinner. And I cannot save myself. Lord, I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead. Forgive my sin. Ask Him now, forgive my sin and come into my life. I trust you, Jesus, once and for all to be my personal Savior. Thank you for dying for me and for giving me eternal life. I want to act like nobody else is in the room, dear one, but me and you. I want to ask you a question. Did you call on the Lord Jesus to be your Savior? That's wonderful. Do you want to settle once and for all the assurance of your salvation tonight so that you can know for certain when you leave here you belong to the Lord, He belongs to you? That's what you want. Here's what I'm going to ask. I'll not embarrass you. I'm not going to make you give a speech. You see this preacher right here? He's a good man. He's a faithful preacher. He's got a Bible in his hand. I'm getting ready to ask a bunch of Christians to come and pray. I don't want you to get lost in the shuffle. If you're serious tonight about settling this question mark once and for all, I'm going to ask you if you'll quietly, while nobody's looking but me and this preacher, if you'd get up out of your seat and come take him by the hand and sit down here on the front row and let him talk with you for just a moment. Would you come right now and give him the opportunity to talk with you and pray with you tonight? He'll come with you. He'll, he'll get up and come with you. Come on right now. That's wonderful. That's great. God bless you. And give us the opportunity just to talk with you and pray with you. I don't want you to leave here tonight. Amen. Come right on. I don't want you to leave here tonight with any doubt in your mind about your soul's salvation. Drive a stake a mile deep in the ground about it. I admire this. I want you to know, I admire your honesty. God bless you, sir. Now I want to speak to all the Christians who are here, every believer in the place. You say you're saved. You say you know the Lord. Let's get down to business, shall we? Two things. Number one, how many Christians in the place tonight would say, Preacher, I've not been living the Christian life like I ought to be living the Christian life. The Holy Spirit's showing me some things I've been neglecting. I, I've been neglecting His wealth. And I, I've been neglecting His Word. And I've been neglecting His work. In maybe all these ways, or at least one of these ways, I've been neglecting the things Jesus has given to me. And if Jesus came right now, I'd be ashamed. I'd just be ashamed, and I don't want to be ashamed when it comes. And tonight, preacher, I want to ask the Holy Spirit to help me from this day forward to be the Christian God saved me to be. Preacher, that's me. Pray for me. I want you to raise your hand big and high in the air with mine right now, would you please? If you mean it, stand up right where you are. Just stand to your feet right where you are. You'll say, that's me. I'm saved. I know the Lord. Love the Lord. I realize tonight I've been, I've been missing some things he's left me. I don't want to miss him anymore. Amen to that. Remain standing just a moment, if you will. Here's the second question. I'm speaking to everybody who's seated right now. How many Christians in the place would say, Preacher, 
I've been walking with the Lord, trying to serve the Lord. But tonight I realize the time is short, and I want to live with a greater expectancy, a greater watchfulness. I want to be after souls. I want to help bring others to Jesus. Preacher, that's me. I want that watchfulness in my heart again. I want to finish well. Pray for me. I want you to raise your hand big and high in the air with mine, would you please? If you mean it, stand and join those who are already standing right now. You say as a public testimony before God and men, I want this preacher. I don't want just a revival meeting. I want the revived life God has for me. Amen to that. If you're standing right now, would you lift your head and look at me? We're almost done. This is how we're going to finish our revival meeting. If you were here on Sunday, you know how we started. We started with a season of prayer, all of us together. We're going to end with a season of prayer, all of us together. If you're physically able, if you're not, God understands it, so do we. But if you're physically able, I'm going to ask you in just a moment to leave where you are and come join me in this old-fashioned altar. If you can kneel, kneel. If you can't kneel, and then just stand or sit on the front. But we're going to gather here at the front and close this meeting in prayer, asking the Lord to help us do what we can while we can. And if that's truly what you want, I believe it is. I'm going to ask you right now, would you leave your place and come? Just as quickly, quietly, reverently as possible. Find your place of prayer. We said this is the greatest week in the history of the world. Let me tell you the next greatest week. It'll be the week Jesus comes. <laughs> we don't know the day. We don't know the hour. Only the Father knows that. It's in the Father's good hands. But it's coming. He's coming. Oh, Lord, we want to be ready when you come. I want to be ready, Lord. Ask the Lord to wake you up good. Lord, wake me up really good. Get me wide awake. Get me in tune with God. Get me burdened for souls. Get me engaged in the work. Help me not just fill a church pew anymore. Lord God, take us all to the next level. Take this church to the next level. Pray for yourself, dear ones. Pray for yourself first. Help me, Lord. Be a true follower of Jesus. If this Bible message has been used of God in your life, or we can pray for you in some definite way, please contact us at enjoyingthejourney.org. We hope you will share the message with others who may also be encouraged by it. For additional full-length Bible messages, please visit Dr. Scott Pauley's YouTube channel. Tomorrow is the Lord's Day, and we want to encourage you to be faithful to attend a Bible-preaching church in your area this Sunday. Thank you for listening to The Weekend Pulpit. And don't miss Enjoying the Journey daily devotional podcast each Monday through Friday.